Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Going to run that as the open. open. It's enjoyable enough even for those who would rather eat broken glass than sit through another elephantine CGI fest from the damned Marvel Comics universe. That's a review. Jim Lane of Sacramento News and Review. He's talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, one of three films we're reviewing this time on Cinephile. Great to have you back with us as always. Uh, Dan Stanzik and I back from Washington, D.C. You a D.C. fan, Danny? One of your favorite cities? I love DC. You could put me there for a week. I'll walk around and look at the monuments. Big history guy. You know that. And the museum. Woo. I was going to say, as a politically oriented guy, I could see you really soaking it up. I hear the Library of Congress is amazing. Literally, some of our crew that was there in baseball tonight, they spent part of their free day going to the Library of Congress. And I said, sounds a little bland. No, they go, no, it's amazing. You've got to go check it out. I said, All right. Library of Congress. Who am I to quibble? I'm the guy who goes and sees matinee movies is my first choice. Uh, as always, give us some love on Cinephile. Uh, check us out on iTunes. You can rate and review and leave some comments. As always, we appreciate the comments. Or you can tweet us. Rick Passmore doing a great job covering up our Twitter feed, which is Cinephile ESPN. J.P. Marietta, always a big fan of ours. He loved the Truman Show review from Dan Stanzik. I concur. My brother was a fan of it as well. Uh, so good About stuff time. there. Right, he's back on the wagon now. He's like, no, that Truman Show, that's a good movie. We still have to find out what movie he didn't like that Passmore reviewed. It must have been Grandma's Boy, but we'll figure it out. Really pleased while in D.C. for the All-Star break, had a chance to talk to Ben Bradley Jr. I did not realize he is a big deal. He was the sport, uh, the columnist rather at the Boston Globe that was in charge of the entire spotlight story and immortalized in the film by John Slattery. Very good actor, of course, from Mad Men and talked to Nick Davis. He's a terrific documentarian. He's got great bloodlines. His grandfather wrote Citizen Kane, Herman Mankiewicz with Orson Welles. And their new documentary is called Ted Williams, the best hitter who ever lived. It is airing Monday, July 23rd, so this coming Monday, 9 o'clock Eastern on PBS. Uh, I'm not a Red Sox fan. I'm obviously an enormous baseball fan. And Ted Williams, I don't know about you, Danny, but he's one of my favorite figures because he's a fascinating guy. He, he, he only cared about hitting. As you'll hear in the interviews, I said to Ben Bradley, all athletes have to be incredibly driven and hardworking. You can't get there without that type of drive and talent. But Ted Williams was obsessive with a capital O and capitalized and italicized. All he cared about was hitting. Didn't care about defense, played on some bad Red Sox teams, and a good correlation that Nick Davis made documentarian, he's like a Joey Votto from today. Votto's a weird guy, he's just kind of off a little bit, but he's a tremendous hitter, and that's all he cares about, that's all he focuses on, pitches two inches outside, I'm not going to swing at it, I'm going to protect the zone, and, and that's the way it is. And, and Ted's life, I mean, Bob Costas has said, he was John Wayne, he was the real-life John Wayne. Nobody could fly a fighter pilot better than Ted in the war, he lost five years to the war, who could have imagined how much better his statistics would have been. Love fly fishing, the best in the world at that. He's in two fishing Hall of Fames in the world and one of the greatest hitters who ever lived. You may know the story, and I don't know the particulars. I just know on the last day of the season when he hit 400, I believe there was a double header. Yeah, you're right. And so he got a hit, and he was over 500 or over 400, and they were like, we'll take you out. And he said no, and he went on. I think he went five for eight that day or something. He was hitting 3995 going into the final of the doubleheader. And they said, you can sit it out and we'll just round it up. It'll be 400. And he said, no way. And he went six for eight and hit 406. I mean, like, as Costa says in the documentary, like, that's a man's man kind of move. Uh, so I encourage you to check out the documentary. Even if you're not a baseball fan, you know, American Masters is terrific stuff on PBS. It's about an hour long, really fascinating. And of course, when you mentioned Ted Williams, if you're 25 and under, all you wonder about is his head and the fact he's cryogenically frozen, which the documentary does touch on. What a bizarre and, and fantastical tale that is. Hopefully it doesn't obscure what a legend he was. But Ben Bradley and uh, Nick Davis are coming up momentarily. Let's do a few reviews. And Rick Passbar is going to engage me here on Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I found to be one of these elephantine, bloated CGI Marvel features. I think this has been one of the worst summers in recent memory when it comes to big-budget features. The only one that really stands out for me is Deadpool 2. Uh for the record, I enjoyed the first Ant-Man. I thought it was clever, much in the way that Deadpool was subverting the superhero genre. I like the fan that rather than bigger is better and faster is stronger, Ant-Man is smaller. And the fact that you have a diminutive superhero, and of course the film is going to use the likability and, and easy guy charm of Paul Rudd. 
But I thought in the movie as a sequel, there wasn't anything particularly fresh. Evangeline Lilly, we love her because she's Canadian, but I thought her role was fine. Michael Pena has a few worthy lines of being a comedic foil. But I thought the plot was all over the place. It felt repetitive to me. Uh, didn't have a strong villain. And honestly, my primary thought was like, what's going through the minds of Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Lawrence Fishburne? Like, these are three really talented actors, Oscar nominated, et cetera. They're like, this is what it's come to. Like, we have, we're an Ant-Man on the Wasp, and I don't want to say they're just picking up a check, but it just feels like, what is going on with today's cinema? This is where they are. I thought it was small scale by Marvel standards. The action scenes were fine, but honestly, nothing that stood out for me. I'm only giving it two Maple Leafs. It did get good reviews, uh, and Passport's an ad- advocate for the films. Tell me where I've aired. What did I miss with Ant-Man and the Wasp? Well, coming off of Black Panther and the Avengers uh, earlier this year with Infinity War and how heavy a lot of those films are with uh, social commentary and just the breadth of what they've become in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man is really just a good summer film. It's just something to go in, watch. There's very low stakes overall, especially within the MCU. You could just go in, laugh, enjoy yourself. Paul Rudd's charismatic as hell. So it's just enjoyable to watch him just bounce off every other character in the room and do his thing. And you have a really, you have a really kind of silly antagonist in Walton Goggins, as we know from, uh, I believe he was, uh, on a couple TV shows on FX. He's done very well as a character actor. Um, but overall, they're setting up again something much bigger for, uh, Infinity War Part Two coming out next year. So there's, there's a bigger play in the works right now from what you're saying. You feel it's small stakes. Small potatoes compared to what they've been doing and what there is out there. However, they're bringing in these high-end A-listers, Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, you know, spoiler alert. I'll give you time just to kind of press the fast forward real quick. She's only in the movie for maybe twenty minutes. Yeah, not enough Michelle Pfeiffer. However, I have a feeling we're going to see a lot more of her in Infinity War Part Two. I feel that's going to be like this three-hour epic, just like Infinity War Part One, where it was very well paced for being two and a half hours. That at the end of it, like the, everything is gonna pay off. I have complete faith in what Marvel has been doing the last decade. That they have a plan for everything, and, and even their missteps have been very slight. So right now, you consider this a mediocre Marvel Marvel film. Right. But put this up against uh, Iron Man ten years ago. This might be one of the best movies of the summer, and you'd be raving about it. But because you know what the scheme of Marvel is right now, it looks like it's just kind of mediocre and minuscule. Yeah. Well, that's fair. I will agree with you in that it is breezy entertainment. I mean, it is not heavy, as you mentioned, those other films. There's no social agenda here. They're not trying to make a grander statement. Uh, it is supposed to be just a fun summer movie. And for me, it wasn't as much fun as I would have thought, but it's fine. It passed the time. We'll give it two Maple Leafs. Hereditary is the one I was really excited to see. So 89% of Rotten Tomatoes. It's a horror movie, which I'm not a fan of the genre. But we're sitting here, fellas, mid-July, and the best movie this year is a horror movie. It's A Quiet Place by John Krasinski, which is now available on DVD. I I encourage all of you to go check it out. It's a terrific film. I've I've already reviewed it in the pod, but in case you're listening for the first time, it's emotionally resonant. It has all the requisite chills and thrills, and it's really an assured debut by Krasinski, who I think is going to be a filmmaker of some prominence, along with being a good comedic actor from what we've seen in The Office. But Hereditary... Okay, Ray Review is really scary. My buddy Mike Benzani is the best. He, he told me he had to read some spoilers beforehand. He left the theater knowing when those scenes would come because he couldn't take it. So I said, wait, you read up to find out what happens in the movie. He's like, yeah, because I'm going to be too petrified. And then you left the theater because you couldn't take it. I said, yeah. And I said, all right, I don't think I'm a scaredy cat per se, but I don't think I'm the strongest man in the world. So I'm like, maybe I should buckle up for this. So I can't wait to go see Hereditary because of the reviews. And I like Tony Collette, good cast. Uh, Gabriel Burns in the movie as well. First half an hour, it's just lurching along, and I was starving. And you guys know I'm loath to leave the cinema, but I said, I've got to go get something to eat. So I run out and get some chicken fingers, and I asked the guy, chicken tenders, and I asked the guy, I go, listen, have you seen Hereditary? He goes, yeah. I go, when does this thing get rolling? Like, it's it's atmospheric, and it's setting the pace, but, like, nothing's happened really yet. Like, there's one incident which has happened, but now the wheels are just slowly creaking. And he goes, oh, you got to get at least a good 45 or anything really happens. I go, are you serious? He's like, yeah. I go, this is a really basic rule of thumb when it comes to cinema. You should give any movie 10 minutes. And if it 10 minutes doesn't grab you, there's no reason you should be watching. Like, honestly, I, I, there are movies now, and I, I've foregone this theory. That Dan Stanzik was right. I've seen the light. You go ahead and watch a movie uh, on the plane. Like, you know what? Who cares? Like, watch a movie on your phone now. Any chance you ever watch a movie? Go ahead. Like, I watched 10 minutes of Red Sparrow, and I'm like, all right, this isn't grabbing me, so I'm done. I don't have to hang in here. I'm on Delta. I'll watch a Mitchum movie they had uh, out of the past again. I'm like, great. I'll watch this again. So if it takes 45 minutes for a movie to really get going, is that really worthwhile to you? So I took my time with the tenders. I came back in. I did see the impactful moment, which was jarring. I'm like, okay, now we're going to get rolling here. 
And then the, the wheels set in motion. Here's what's fascinating about hereditary. I think it's a slow burn, but I mean, it, it, <laughs> it puts the slow in slow burn. I mean, it's just, it takes forever. It just feels monotonous. And even the thrills when they come, I didn't find it frightful at all. I, I wouldn't say I found it amusing. That would be going the other way and saying it's scary, but funny, but it was odd. It was unsettling. But I had no trouble sleeping. I mean, you have to love seances and supernaturals and hence the title hereditary. Uh, what I can tell you about the story is Tony Collette is haunted by what's happened to her. And there's some events that affect her in the movie. And she's the best reason to see the movie. She is fantastic. I hope she gets nominated or is at least in the Oscar conversation. It's awfully tough to manage this type of emotions. She goes from being frightened to being frightening to at times being delirious to at times being amusing, like there's almost a winking nod to what she's doing, to eccentric and hysterical. Like, that's a wide range of emotions. And as you guys recall, I hated the movie Split. I thought it was awful, and I thought McAvoy was trying way too hard doing these cascading emotions. It was like a bad drama class. Okay, act silly, act funny, act scary. Colette is riding this roller coaster of emotions and doing it with this sense of realism. I thought she was fantastic. I mean, she, I would say, is worth the price of admission. But the movie for me was disappointing. I did not think it, it held up. And here's what's fascinating. So Rotten Tomatoes gave it 89% rave reviews. Cinema score, which is what audiences give it after they see it, gave it a D plus. That's an awfully wide gulf between critics saying this is one of the best movies of the year and fans going in there and going, what? And as the end credits rolled, I turned to the two guys next to me who I did not know. And I said, did you guys like it? Like, I can tell by the huffing and puffing you're with me. And they're like, no, what the hell was that? So it's amazing to me that there's such a gulf with this movie. And Rick Passmore, who is the guy I defer to when it comes to the horror movie genre. Ricky, are you with the critics or are you with the fans? I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. I'm with the fans. Oh. Um, I actually had to sit down with uh, one of my supervisors here that is also a big horror movie guy. And the, the first things he said to me before our meeting when I met him out on the plaza was, I have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> because he had heard through other friends of mine that I, I did not care for Hereditary as much as other people. So, but after our sit down, uh, uh, he kind of opened some doors to me and said, rewatch it. It's like, you don't have to go back to the theater, but when it comes out on VOD, when it comes out on Blu-ray, whatever, like give it another rewatch. There's a lot of little things here and there that you probably missed because you were just sitting waiting for something to happen. So I said, I'll give you that stuff you missed, like from a technical level. Cause I read some of that critics saying, I oh, just love the cinematography. Well, I was all build. in on the cinematography. I think yeah. it's a, I think it's a, it's well shot. It's a well shot film. I think it's going to be up for best cinematography, best editing, best. I think Tony Collette is is a shoe in for a best actress nomination. You think so? Because horror genres are tough to get nominated. However, Exorcist accepted. I, I'll I'll defer to this. Look at last year's Oscars nominations. Right, get out. Get like a lot of genre stuff is coming back into play. So especially you're getting high and we uh, there's higher uh, higher concept horrors are becoming more into play uh, overall too. So they're they're really opening up to outside of period piece and, and historical dramas. They're really uh, – the, the newer Academy yeah. is starting to uh, appreciate Younger, more other, diverse. other films other than period dramas and historical narratives. However, it does drag, and that was one of my big problems with it is there's a lot of stuff that I really liked and I thought was really smart and well done had it been a half hour less. Had they taken a little more, taken a little more time getting to it, like, or taken some time away from just sitting there and, and doing something, they, the, the impactful scene that we spoke of earlier, yeah, that is, that Great. is the scene of the film. Great. That, that and the dinner table scene. Yeah. Those are the two scenes of the film that are just tremendous. Yeah. Those, and those are what, like, you're going to watch for, for the Oscars. Like, those are the two you send to the, to the Academy and say, these are, this is why we're going to be nominated. Right. But everything else around it is just there's so much fat within this that's built to be tense, and it's not. It's just boring. There yeah. is no tension to it. There's there's a lot of like really good stuff in it, but you know it's it's like you've you've got a bunch of lettuce on a sandwich that has really good meat, but you just got a bunch of like crappy shredded romaine lettuce around it, <laughs> and and that's what your filler is. But people that like lettuce are liking the liking the movie. They they're buying into that side. Yeah, but. I'll uh, I'll take AJ's word for it and I'll rewatch it and I'll change my opinion if I need to upon rewatching later this year. However, right now I'm with you. It, it's a two it's a two Maple Leaf movie uh, overall. Like I appreciate what they're doing. I appreciate the fact it's a first time director getting a shot. And I I love uh I love that aspect of it. And I love Tony Collette's performance. I thought Gabriel Byrne was wasted. 
Yeah, I thought he didn't was, have much to do, and I like he, him. He's a good actor. He's a great actor, but just just all he, he had to do was just one com- note. He just complained about her going crazy, <laughs> about her losing her marbles. And but he stayed with her instead of ta- instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to take the kids and get out. Yeah, and leave because you're being asinine. Well, I'll just kind of stick around and let you do your thing. <laughs> I like the lettuce analogy in particular. So we both give hereditary two maple leaves. Uh, Dan, I'm assuming you've not seen Ant-Man and the Wasp or Hereditary. Have you seen Blockers? <laughs> no, sir. Watch that on the plane, which, by the way, the guy recognized me, and it was very nice of him because immediately he goes, hey, you're Adnan Burke. I said, yeah. And I think he saw the resignation when I my slumped shoulders. I'm like, this is a long flight to L.A. Wait, Big wait question. A- recognized you from what? He didn't say. But immediately he went with the movie stuff. Like, he literally just goes, hey. And I was like, yeah. And I think he saw my face. Like, I just... I just want to chill. He's like, I'm not going to bother you. I just want to. <laughs> no, 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 no. We can say a few words. We got five minutes for you. How are things going? Where are you from? Okay, great. It was when I was going to Fresno for the boxing. And I was like, oh, yeah, Fresno, great. NorCal. My wife's from NorCal. Love it. Yeah, great. He and, saw your TED Talk. Yeah, yeah, the TED Talk's what he saw. So then uh, he goes, listen, I'm about to watch a movie. And I said, yeah. He goes, you're, you're the movie guy. I'm like, yep. And he goes, what should I watch? Arrival or There Will Be Blood? I would have told him Arrival. Exactly. You obviously told him there will be blood. I thought of you immediately. I was like, well, if Dan Sanzig was here. He loves Amy Adams, and he loves that film, Denis Villeneuve's movie. And, and I should have said this, which is, of course, the first question to ask. What are some of your favorite movies? What are you into? Because I don't think we're going to agree on the same page. Ergo, I said, Arrival's an excellent movie. There will be blood. one of the best movies of this century. And he was like, wow, okay. I think he got through 45 minutes of the movie plot. Like I'm, I'm watching blockers, which I dialed up and I'm like, he's not into it. Like he, like I, I, I wanted to ask him, what was it about you? Maybe on the plane, it's a tough movie to get into. I'm not sure, but he was not, uh, not taken away by Daniel Plainview, but blockers. I'm glad I was with this guy who I knew because there's a lot of objectionable conduct. So if I was sitting next to, you know, an older woman, perhaps I'm like, sorry about uh, some of the information here in this film I'm watching because they don't really edit it now much of these airplanes. So I'm giving it two eight beliefs. It's a funny movie. If you're looking for a good comedy, uh, I thought it was enjoyable. There's about a half a dozen good laugh out loud moments. It's a hard R, as we said earlier on Golik and Wingo, trending NC-17. If you like Apatow's uh, sense of humor, I think it fits with that. What's interesting about it is a female director. You normally don't get female directors in these types of raunchy comedies, so that's nice to see. And John Cena's funny, man. He's got excellent comic timing. I liked him in Trainwreck with Amy Schumer. And once again, he shows a willingness to, to send up his own image as this muscular, tough guy uh, who isn't as tough as he thinks. The story's about a few parents who are trying to track their kids who they believe have made a pact, which is correct, to lose their virginity on their prom night. So they are blockers. And I wouldn't go so far. Somebody said to me that I thought the kids are better than the parents. I wouldn't go that far. Cena and, and company are funnier. But the Cena's daughter in the movie, I don't know the actress's name offhand. She's hilarious. And she's got a couple of really good lines as well. Uh, it's about 90 minutes, so it's a good pace to it. And uh, nothing particularly fresh, I think, about it. You've seen similar high school raunchy comedies like this. But it was funny and enjoyable. And uh, Gary Cole's pretty good in it. So I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I thought it was entertaining enough. Blockers, check it out now on DVD. And perhaps on an airplane with a guy when you're going to Fresno. Now it's time for Ben Bradley and Nick Davis. Ted Williams is their documentary. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because, yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh, no. It's the Dust Bunny's only natural predator. Run along, Dust Bunnies. Run along. All right, American Masters, Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived, premieres nationwide on PBS Monday, July 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern. A real pleasure to be joined by the producer and director, Nick Davis, and Ben Bradley Jr., my favorite of all the interview subjects in the film. Nick, it's such a ripe subject because all the things I've known about Ted Williams is greatest hitter who ever lived, greatest fly fisherman who ever lived, and the greatest pilot who ever lived. Of those aspects, which was it that most enticed you? Well, I think anybody who can be the greatest at all of those things is a fascinating character. He was so obsessed and so driven to be the best at anything. You know, American Masters has done over 200 profiles in 32 years. They've only done three athletes. And Ted is the first male athlete and obviously the first baseball player. And it's because he was so driven and so focused. You know, you mentioned the title of the film, Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. It's important, at least to me, that the subtitle is in quotes. It's not that the film is saying he's the greatest hitter who ever lived. It's that that's what drove him was to be known as the greatest hitter who ever lived. And it's the obsession that makes him so fascinating as a character. 
It's amazing, Ben, because like all athletes by their very nature have to be obsessive. They have to be hardworking and driven. But it feels like Ted was obsessed with a capital O and capitalized and italicized and took it to a new level. What are some examples of just his obsession that when you were researching your book, The Kid, you said this guy was at a different level when it came to his preparation? Interesting. Well, you know, he, he, he resented that um, uh, people considered him a natural, uh, that he had great eyesight and hand-eye coordination. And he liked to stress that um, it was his work ethic more than anything else. And he would just swing the bat until his hands were raw. He would carry a bat to school with him um, as a kid. And he always said, no one would ever outwork me. And um, it seems kind of a, almost a cliche exp- explanation for his uh, success. But that's what he believed. It's amazing to think about race in America and how it's changed over the years, Nick, and how polarizing a subject it remains. And Ted Williams, and I don't think enough people realize this, his mom was Mexican, and he, I don't want to say disavowed her, but she wasn't interested in him, so to speak. She was off doing her own work, so he said, all right, fine, I don't have time for me, I don't have time for you. But he never acknowledged his Mexican heritage as a great anecdote in the story about his cousin seeing him and all these Mexican relatives welcoming him, like, no, I got no time for this. Like, how... How unusual, maybe it wasn't unusual at that time to disavow, but how crazy it was for you to go back and say, listen, this guy is a Mexican-American that nobody knows about. Well, nobody knows about it. I'm a huge baseball fan, and I sort of was vaguely aware that there may have been something. His mother was Mexican or, or you know, and um, he did not want to talk about it. And we spoke to his cousin, and his cousin said, as you said, like, you know, he, he saw all these Mexicans greeting him at the train station when the train pulled in. I think it was after his uh, great minor league season, rookie. Yeah. And he ran away from them. He, he wanted nothing to do with them. Um, he, and, and I think because his mother was who she was and spent so much time away from him with the Salvation Army, and Ben can speak to this because it's from his book and his research that we, we got all this, um, you know, he just wanted nothing to do with it and, and sort of drove himself to distinguish himself and whether it was rage or shame or some combination thereof, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, I don't know, but that's what made him tick. And so what's amazing also, I, I didn't know this going in, is that then when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame, obviously on the first ballot, he gives this speech uh, over the, you know, ob- objections of the Hall of Fame, the the people who ran the Hall of Fame, where he says the great Negro League players should be inducted into the Hall of Fame and they shouldn't be denied just because they didn't get the chance. And that, like, when you think about Ted Williams as a political figure, if you think of him as, at all, you think he's right wing, and as Dick Flavin says in the film, you know, he's to the right of Attila the Hun, except when it comes to civil rights. Maybe because he either it sensed on some level or actually believed that, um, you know, people should not be... Uh, prejudiced against just because of who they are at birth and so um so he gives this amazing speech and sure enough within a few years there the new York league players are inducted into the hall of fame ben is it too redemptive to say that because he was ashamed of his past that he used his moment then to preach for civil rights was it was it that deep or was it just a situation where ted knew what was right was right and he was going to set the score right i think a little of both probably uh i think that train station story was so revealing uh, that he saw these, these, uh, what I call the motley crew of Mexicans and he wanted nothing to do with it, got the hell out of Dodge. And, um, but you know, it's interesting. It, it did come out, um, in a story that didn't get much attention, um, shortly before his death, that is Mexican heritage. It was a, a feature story in the, in the Boston Globe written by a freelancer. And, uh, but it, it didn't really get picked up or, or resonated. But, you know, one interesting thing I, I learned and, and put in the book was that he did bond with Nomar Garcia Parra about his Mexican-American heritage. Both, uh, I think both Nomar's parents were uh, Mexican-American, and they bonded together, and they were tight, those two. Um, so, uh, but he didn't broadcast it, certainly. It's amazing when you think about DiMaggio and Williams, these two mythological figures, and over the passage of time, the narrative has flipped. It used to be Ted was temperamental and a jerk and crazy, and DiMaggio was regal. I read Richard Ben Kramer's book, and I said, all right, DiMaggio was a horrible person. He was unbelievably cheap. 
He was a completely self-obsessed and narcissist and a bad teammate. Say what you will about Ted. He's temperamental, was not a good husband, but a good teammate. Bobby Doerr and those guys loved having Ted in the clubhouse. He'd fight for his guys. I think that's fascinating how you realize, hey, they had it wrong back in the 40s. DiMaggio wasn't the king. Ted really was, and I hope this documentary helps illuminate that a little bit. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think the narrative has flipped. You're right. And... Um Ted um, Ted was always very uh, kind and, and restrained to DiMaggio, who uh, would disparage Ted privately to his uh, to his friends, and uh, they you know he would say, uh, "How many rings? Hold up, tell him to hold up his hands. How many rings has he got?" And uh, you know he runs like a duck, and uh, you can't feel, doesn't care about uh, anything but hitting. And throws like and, a girl, and he's yeah, and throws like a broad, yeah. Um, and um, but Ted would uh, would never take the bait and uh, always be very uh, deferential to Joe. So I think Joe uh, treated Ted uh, better than Ted, uh, more harshly than Ted uh, treated Joe. I, what I love about the film, Nick, is you didn't focus on the ending. Uh, Lee Monfell has a great line in the documentary where he goes, if my book's the only one along with the Bible, wouldn't you wonder what happens to the main character after he dies? But I, I, that problem is now, if you mention to somebody 25 and under Ted Williams, they go, oh, the cryogenically stuff, like his head's frozen. And it's, it's, it becomes frustrating because as a baseball fan, you say, well, that's just a small part of the story. It's fascinating, and I agree it's lurid, but it really doesn't tell much of the story. And I would think in your documentary, it's maybe a few minutes at the end, but I'm glad you didn't focus on it. Did you make a conscious decision to say, if you want to learn about that stuff, you can go find that elsewhere. I'm trying to tell his whole life, and this is just one small aspect. Yeah, we, we, we weren't really interested in the, the nuances and the ins and outs. It's fascinating, but it's its own film. I mean, it really could be it's uh, at least an hour just on on what in the world happened after he died. But um, But I was interested in doing for American Masters what they do, which is creating portraits of people who are interesting and complex and obsessive and they're like an artist or like a scientist which is what Ted Williams was and so he wasn't making any conscious decisions after he was dead so whatever happened it doesn't it's not really that revealing it is revealing that he agreed to do it if he agreed to do it and and the way Claudia describes it in the film and why in the world it, it, she did it or John Henry the son did it uh, or Ted did it but um, but you know getting into the ins and outs of then he's flown and put on ice and his head's on a tuna can all that stuff fascinating i'm not saying it isn't interesting but we just didn't have time and it doesn't it doesn't help our story in the in the long run i don't think the cryonics affair is going to um, affect his legacy hurt his legacy i know that a lot of the uh, the old timers that i interviewed who are now gone um, people like johnny pesky and bobby door they were really uh, worried about that and they hated the cryonics the idea of it and it was seemed so uh, awful on its face and um, and when he died uh, a lot of young people's first introduction to Williams was the cryonics affair and you'd hear the uh, David Letterman and uh, you know the the uh, the night show uh, entertainment guys making popsicle jokes and uh, that sort of trickled into the into the uh, cultural bloodstream and uh, you wondered but I, I think in the long run uh, people, um, perhaps helped by this film, we'll, we'll remember him not for that. I, I certainly hope so, but I also do think that there is there is something fitting, and I think it's the subtitle of your book about Ted being the one who is frozen for immortality, and so I think that there's there there it's not wholly out of left field, shall we say. And there, there's something almost fitting about it, uh, as lurid as it is. Well, I picked that up as a double entendre for yeah. the sub. The, the subtitle is The Immortal Life of Ted Williams. Yeah. Not not addressing, but he, he said famously uh, as a kid coming up, I want to be an immortal, as it's known in baseball, you know. Yeah. And then, um, but in cryonics, the people who, who follow that field, they call themselves immortalists. <laughs> So there is the, the double entendre. It deserves its own documentary. Uh, as a documentary, Nick, I'm fascinated how you put it all together. I mean, this archival video and the images. There's one section that Claudia's talking about his fishing and how Ted was obsessed with it. And like, you have a shot of him looking at a lure and then he's writing in pages. And I'm like, I don't know if he's actually writing about fishing, but the way you intricately put it together, how challenging was that for documentarians out there, filmmakers listening to amass this type of wealth of material? Well, it was challenging, but it's also the job and it's what 
we love to do as documentarians. I mean, it's the most fun thing in the world is to wrap your arms around an enormous subject and just winnow and winnow and winnow and find the best stuff. Uh, and this film was made in partnership with Major League Baseball, so they obviously have a huge baseball archive of Ted Williams. The fishing stuff we got from all over. Um, but actually, he was, I think, writing in the log or at least pretending to for a film in 1971. You know, in that we weren't cheating. There are other yeah. cheats probably in the film that I'm unaware of or maybe I am aware of uh, but that's not one of them he was actually writing and, and doing his fishing log in that it's a really American story in ways Ben because it's about fathers and sons and John Henry was trying to be a part of his dad's legacy and enrich it and Ted was trying to make up for decades of neglect but there is a feeling that John Henry was capitalizing on his dad's fame was pushing him at times to sign too many autographs uh, to help his own failing business at the time where do you kind of try to epitomize that father-son relationship and how it was maybe fractured by the end or healed by the end. Well, I, I think it's an imp- important part of my book. And uh, really, the, the the last part of it is devoted to uh, the father-son relationship. I mean, Ted knew that he was nowhere as a father uh, or a husband for that matter, but um, that he had just failed. He didn't know how to do it. And he tried to make up for lost time late in life and um, formed this relationship with uh, John Henry, his son, who, with whom he was uh, particularly close. And I think is uh, partly a way to um, uh, make up for his failures. He sort of handed over the keys to this kingdom, as it were, um, and let him run this uh, his memorabilia business. Let him run, uh, you know, the various companies. And and uh, John Henry was a was a twenty uh, five year old kid just out of college. Didn't really know what to do. So I think he, yes, he did exploit his father, but I, I think he also loved his father. And I tried to convey that. It, it, it was like shooting fish in a barrel to, to just paint him as the, the bad seed, uh, which, which everyone did. But I tried to dig deep and show moments where, you know, he did, he did take care of his father at the end. Well, you see that we have some home movie footage that was shot by uh, friends of the lawyer of the family, and you see in the '99 All Star Game, you see Ted and his dad, and you see you see the love in in the son's demeanor towards his dad, and and taking care of him, and then helping him as he's greeting people up in the in the press box, and it's it is a complicated thing. It is, as Ben said, it'd be easy to just say, yeah, you know, and as I think a lot of people in Boston just hated that kid, but. Um, but he, it's it's always more complicated, and it would be very hard to be the son of Ted Williams. Yeah, and one aspect I think is redemptive is the charitable efforts he did, Ben. Just speak a little bit what he did with the Jimmy Fund, because you know, living in New England now, ESPN's in Connecticut, every time I hear Jimmy Fund, I go, hey, Ted was an enormous part of this and did not want to be seen as somebody who was um, exulting in the charitable efforts. He was doing this very privately. Yeah, and he he, he famously said that um, you know he didn't want any press for that. You know, he would tell the writers, "If you write this, I'm never going to talk to you again." You know, he didn't want it to um, look like he was grandstanding or showing off or doing something that would help his uh, you know churlish uh, image. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really genuine, and um, as as they say in the film, he he, uh, he would give these nurses. Uh, private phone number and and uh, they would call him and he would come down and and spend uh you know a lot of time with those kids and i was able to reach a few who didn't die back in those days you died of, of uh you know leukemia cancer and uh i was able to f- find a few uh in my research who uh, survived and you know the how they speak of williams uh, today is, is is just something yeah, it's reverential. Uh, on a personal note, Nick, your grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, co-wrote Citizen Kane. Did you have like a vanity license plate with like Rosebud? Like you're going to give me a Citizen Kane story. Uh, the Citizen Kane story. Oh, my God. Where to begin? Well, um, uh, the Rosebud sled, you know, we there was a Rosebud sled that my cousin had. And, of course, it turned out it wasn't the real sled. I mean, so it's like there's all these things about Herman Mankiewicz that are – that he's, he's wonderful legends and stories, you know. Famously, uh, he sent the telegram – when he first got out to Hollywood, he sent the telegram east telling everybody, uh, you know, uh, come out here. There's millions to be made out here and your only competition is idiots. And so that starts the flood of all 
all the screenwriters out to Hollywood. And then Herman sort of hated everything that he did. He, he sort of felt it was beneath him. He gets this job to work on this crazy children's movie. And he says, well, you know, at one point when you get to the land, the film should go from black and white to color. And he's like, that's all I got for you on Wizard of Oz. So, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, but he, but he thought he was all just like sort of crap, you know. Um, and then actually, you know, when he finally met Orson Welles, he thought, okay, this guy is going to make something good. I'm going to put my heart and soul into it. And, um, and so, uh, he did with Citizen Kane. And then, of course, he goes back to the studio grind. And the next thing you know, he's meeting Louis B. Mayer and Sam Goldwyn. Sam Goldwyn's telling him, this game of baseball is so boring. Can we make it three balls and two strikes here out? And my grandfather's writing Pride of the Yankees. He says, no, Sam, we got to keep it three strikes. Everybody knows that. So that's Herman Mankiewicz. Great stuff, Ben. And Ben, I'm just curious, the post came out last year, that seeing your dad portrayed by Tom Hanks. I love all the presidents, Ben, and what Jason Robarts did in that film, but you would know it better than anybody. Who played a better version of your dad, Hanks or Robarts? Yeah, well, they're different. I, I personally preferred uh, Robarts, and that, that was more of a sort of a hardcore newspaper um, movie that focused on the investigative reporting and so forth. The, the post is really... Uh, it's it's a coming of age film about uh, Catherine Graham and and it's um, uh, you know I think she um, I think Streep stole the show. I saw Spotlight again recently too, and I mean, again as a journalist, that's like that's the Ted Williams of journalism movies, right? <laughs> uh, that's it, that turned out great. You know, it was such a surprise for us. We we. Uh, we did some good work, and we we thought our work was done, as it were, when it, they were lucky enough to get the Pulitzer Prize that year. But then these five or six years go by, and these two women, young women from um, uh, L.A. Um, producers, wannabe producers, uh, come and say, we love that story. We want to do a film. And so, you know, we didn't really give them uh, much credibility, and but they said... Talk to us, and so we did, and uh, they they uh, disappeared for five or six years. Hard to make movies, you know, yeah. and, and get somebody to commit, especially that one. It wasn't an easy sell, you know, investigative reporting. It's mostly uh, working the phones and looking at documents, not particularly sexy. And um, the Catholic Church, and you know, a lot of people were scared away by that. But they came back, and uh, they got they got doors slammed in their face right and left. But all of a sudden, a really good cast came together, an ensemble cast, and uh, it's a damn good movie. How do you feel about John Slattery? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, John's become a friend. You know, he's a madman, known for madmen, uh, but he's a, a, a good, a really good character actor who's yeah. has been on Broadway and played a lot of uh, a lot of roles. And uh, we were struck, not knowing that much about. Um, you know the in, the innards of the movie business, just how seriously uh, these actors took their craft. You know, we thought sort of thought up they they would show up, read their lines, mail it in, but no, they really. I mean, Slattery called me up first first thing and said, "Can I come up to Boston and see you? I want to learn about the business and how you got the story and learn about your personal life." And uh, so they hung out with us, and we we really got to know them well. Ted Williams, the greatest hero ever lived, in quotations, as Nick Davis points out. It premieres Monday, July 23rd at 9 o'clock Eastern. Thanks so much, Nick. Ben Bradley. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. This is fun. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E, ZipRecruiter.com slash Cinephile. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. 
So the good news is this. As much as Dan has disdain for his open, maybe the, the people are flocking towards him supporting him. Dave McPeak uh, tweeted last time, enjoyed the Truman Show review, and he also enjoyed the open. So you've got to own it now, man. That's the way I thought somebody be. said I do deserve a better open, though. Somebody's with me because yeah. I really resent that open. They said I'm better than that open. <laughs> Randy Moore, we'll get him on it. Truman Show last time, excellent film from 1998. What direction are we going in this time? We're going, we've been starting like you start, but I start with a quote from the movie. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of my style. Sure. My name is Dalton Russell. Pay strict attention to what I say because I choose my words carefully and I never repeat myself. I've told you my name. That's the who. The where could most readily be described as a prison cell. But there's a vast difference between being stuck in a tiny cell and being in prison. The what is easy. Recently, I planned and set in motion events to execute the perfect bank robbery. That's also the when. As for the why, beyond the obvious financial motivation, it's exceedingly simple. Because I can. Which leaves us, which leaves us only with the how, and therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. Inside Man, yeah, a 2006 Spike Lee joint starring Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, Willem Dafoe, Christopher Plummer, and Jodie Foster. While the bank heist genre is overdone, this film is not trite. The world's foremost New York Knicks fan offers a surprisingly fresh slant. It is clever. Oftentimes, it is funny, and it is littered with small moments and asides packed with social commentary. Clive Owen plays the bank robber. He wears a mask for much of the time and is really the anchor of the film. The action goes through him. And thanks to that opening monologue, which I just read, we know that he does not wind up dead. Denzel plays the lead detective and hostage negotiator in one of his vintage roles, fast-talking, full of bravado, and smart, but with a chip on his shoulder and something to prove. Christopher Plummer plays the owner of the bank who is worried about his safety deposit box, So he hires Jodie Foster, who is some kind of connected power broker that can walk into the mayor's office without a meeting. Although I thought her character was a bit underdeveloped, Foster was a part of the best exchange in the film. After forcing the mayor to do another favor for her, he says, quote, you're a magnificent. (laughs) To which she replies, thank you. The (laughs) The movie is mainly told chronologically, but it is interspliced with hostage interviews indicating that the crime has not been solved. Owen and his cohorts walk into the bank, take everyone inside hostage, and force them to strip down to their underwear and put on the same outfits that they are wearing to confuse law enforcement. At first, Denzel slow plays the entire situation. When Willem Dafoe, the lead tactical cop on the scene, suggests they make contact, Denzel says, no, I'm not calling him yet. Let's see what he does. Later on, he says, let's wait. Let him wonder what we're doing. Eventually, Owen tells him that they want buses and a jet. The chemistry between Owen and Denzel is palpable. It's part of why the movie works so well. In a bit of a twist, Owen is the calm one. He's measured and in control. Denzel is confused, frazzled, unsure of himself, and constantly on the losing side of the chess match. Either way, they like each other and tell one another how smart they are. Denzel finally realizes that Owen doesn't even want his own demands to be met, saying, quote, Whoever heard of bank robbers escaping on a plane with 50 hostages? You've seen Dog Day Afternoon. You're stalling. Why? I don't know. I knew you'd like the Dog Day There's Afternoon There's also reference. a Serpico reference in there, too. He goes, all right, Serpico. Serpico yeah, that's right. true. Yeah. Uh, so the script feels a bit raw in places, and there are some unanswerable questions left hanging in the dust, but the performances are top-notch, and the concept is intriguing. I mean, there's a pun in the title, so obviously I'm in. I give it three and a half stars. Nice. Inside, man. I've only seen it once. I'd love to see it again. It's kind of a reminder of one of Spike's better movies. Speaking of, this summer, as I mentioned, has been disappointing, but I can't wait for Black Klansman. It's opening August 10th. It got rave reviews at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Spike won the Grand Prix, which is a run-up award. And uh, they said Spike Lee's best movie, perhaps, since Inside Man, 12 years ago. So good genre film. Like, it was entertaining. Obviously, as you said, it has conventions. It's a bank heist movie, but really smart the way they did it. A lot of good clips in there. Uh, Pasper, you a big fan of uh, Inside Man? Never seen it. Oh, man. I know. That's... I know. I, the Seriously. disappointment on Dan's face right now is palpable. You don't like Spike? You don't like Denzel? Oh, I like, like Spike. Clyde I like Denzel. I just never got around to it. It's, well, one, of the, it's seen... one of those ones that fell through the crack to have, me. Have you seen He Got Game? <laughs> I've seen He Got Game. <laughs> okay. Woo! He's more of a Mo Better Blues kind of guy. All right. Check out Inside Man if you haven't seen it. Good bank heist movie. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of. All right, Ricky, we've had a, a little time off here from in defense of, so I'm curious to see what direction we're going to go. I believe the last time we spoke, Spawn did not hold up as well as no, let's hope for. That got an unofficial in defense of and uh, not defense of. 
Um, however, uh, in honor of Kawhi Leonard being traded to your Toronto Raptors, Adnan, I decided to look at a cult hit that didn't fare so well in the 2010 box office. Uh, based in Canada, Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh, yeah. Michael based on the graphic Sarah. novel by Brian Lee O'Malley. Starring Michael Sarah at his peak Michael Sarah-ness, and loaded with a hit cast including Amer- uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Anna Kendrick, Aubrey Plaza, Kieran Culkin, Brie Larson, Chris Evans, Allison Pill, Brandon Routh, and Jason, uh, Jason, Jason Schwartzman. That's a tongue twister for me. This visually stimulated action comedy was worthy more than its paltry 84 million box office haul. It did receive a fresh 82% on Rotten Tomatoes, however, a mediocre 69% on Metacritic. The film follows closely with the style of the books on which it's based, living deep within a video game visual style in mid, uh, mid-2000s mid ennui that is far more enchanting now than it appeared at the time. 22-year-old Scott is uh, swimming in apathy, dating a naive high schooler, playing bass in his punk band, and sharing a room with his gay best friend, Wallace Wells, played by Culkin. But he c- becomes enamored with this cyan-haired girl at a party, Ramona Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winston. Despite all the advice against it, he pursues her, and eventually they begin dating. However, in dating her, he learns that in order to continue their courtship, she must uh, he must defeat her seven evil exes. And that includes people like Brandon Routh and Chris Evans and so on and so forth. It is a sensory orgy of style, color, lighting, and action. It is perfect for Wright, who is coming off of the brilliant satire Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and his filmmaking style fits very well for the comic book look that O'Malley crafted over six novels. Along with the visual, uh, the auditory experience is tremendous. The soundtrack is well-crafted and incorporated within the film, and definitely was a phase one test for what he did with last year's Baby Driver. The writing is a little breakneck, and the comedy is definitely of an acquired taste, but from a technical standpoint, along with all the cameos, Scott Pilgrim is worth a bargain pickup on Blu-ray, or at least a stream of which it is on HBO until the end of the month. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I'm surprised it didn't do as well. I didn't. I thought it was like, you know, cult hit, decent reviews, but I didn't realize it had that kind of a reception, Ricky. Absolutely bombed in the box office. I remember seeing it opening weekend. I remember buying it. It's one of the first Blu-rays I ever bought. Uh, it's it's perfect for the high def era when it came out in 2010, early 2011. But yeah, it just it, it never caught on within the theatrical run. However, in DVD, Blu-ray, now streaming, like it's developed more of a cult following. But I don't feel that it's appreciated enough for what it is, especially now that Edgar Wright did Baby Driver and you can look at little beats and things he did within Scott Pilgrim and especially what he's done in uh, the Cornetto trilogy of The World's End and Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Hot Fuzz is unbelievable. And you you go and look at those films and you see how he's grown and learned as a filmmaker and especially just built this career on taking a lot of chances with stuff that – May have been done before, may not have been done before, but definitely making it his own. And Scott Pilgrim is one of those films. And with all the cameos, I mean, Academy Award winner Brie Larson. Yeah, that was in a, in a great little quick, maybe 10, 15 minute cameo within the film. And, and all the other, uh, the, the entire cast and just how they, Bill Hader even has a cameo <laughs> sitting around there somewhere as well. So definitely worth a watch. It's on HBO till the end of the month. If it's not there by the time you listen to this, Go get it on Blu-ray. You can get it for like eight bucks on Amazon or something like that. Thanks for mentioning Bill Hader for your uh, Emmy nominations update. Credit to Barry for getting recognized. His performance there, I haven't seen it. Brad Gilbert, my guy BG on the tennis beat, loves Barry. What I am thrilled about is our man Barry Zuckercorn got nominated. That's right, the Fonz. Henry Winkler, first ever Emmy nomination. He's up for Best Supporting Actor for Barry. He plays a drama teacher in this show, which is about a hitman trying to become an actor, played by Hader. I haven't seen it. It sounds like something I would enjoy, so maybe I should binge watch it at some point. But it I hear is absolutely it. tremendous. Right, and I heard Winkler's the, amazing, ep- right? Uh, it's eight episodes, I believe, in the first season. Hen- yeah, Henry Winkler just steals yeah. it. Uh, definitely, uh, congratulations to him and Hater on their uh, acting noms. Both very well deserved. But the first the first time, I'll, I'll give a little hint to it. The first time this cop is coming around asking questions and uh, Henry Winkler's interaction with the cop is phenomenal. He's just <laughs> attempting tease. to ooze charm and charisma, but the operative word there is ooze. And oh. it's hilarious to watch him just go. 
Good tease. Um, so I was uh, happy for Henry Winkler just because I enjoy him so much from uh, Arrested Development. And sure, Sentimentalist, never nominated for Happy Days, which isn't that surprising. I mean, it was one of those shows that was huge commercial appeal, but you could see the critics saying, listen, we're not going to nominate a guy who goes, hey. So congrats to him. Big surprise. Paterno nominated. Pacino snubbed. I, I, amazed. I, a quiet performance from him, which you normally can't say about Al. And the movie's nominated. Levinson's up for directing, but Al did not get nominated. Uh, for best actor and some thought maybe he was going to win. So that's a surprise. Arrested Development completely snubbed, which tells you what happens when you have bad PR. I, I, listen, I don't know if you guys have seen the new season, even if it wasn't as good as the past seasons. I thought it was all right. I thought at least Jessica Walter would get nominated, but they said that New York Times interview where Bateman and those guys were, uh, Tony Hale and, um, David Cross in particular were so defensive about Tambor and, and not criticizing the Me Too movement, but so quick to take Jeffrey Tambor's side and not care about Jessica Walter, who spoke about being verbally berated by Jeffrey Tambor. That's how you're trying to do press for this show. And instead, it's a huge backlash and blows up in your face. And they say, we're not nominating this show. People didn't see enough of it. Go ahead, Ricky. But um, since it came out so uh, very recently, it was it eligible for this year's Emmys or what yeah. it be up for next year? Well, it was eligible because I remember one of the headlines said Arrest Development shut out. And they wow. said normally at least a Jessica Walter or a Tony Hale get nominated or Arnett's been nominated in the past. And they're like, no. Nope. People are like, hey, man, after that article. Uh, Bateman did get nominated for Ozark for Best Dramatic Actress. That's good for him. He said he's trying to kind of parallel what Hanks did, you know, do comedies and then move towards drama. That's what he's doing with Ozark. I hear some people say it's as good as Breaking Bad, which is a awfully lofty comparison. But 10-year anniversary of Breaking Bad, by the way. Good article in Entertainment Weekly about that show and uh, how groundbreaking it was. But yeah, there's your uh, Emmy nomination recap. I want to give Dan Stanzik a minute to look up what the final bid was for the V Foundation. Today is such an important day for us here at ESPN. We had a bid here for Cinephile. You can come out, hang out me, Dan and Ricky, and I'll interview you on the podcast, talk movies with you. You can tell me Forrest Gump's better than Ben-Hur, and we'll get into it a little bit. Uh, and hey, why not? Even I'll take out to movie if you want. Bowtie Cinemas in Hartford. I'm happy to have a, a dinner date there as well. So uh, as Dan looks up what the winning bid was or maybe around what the number was, I want to tell you we're going to be off on vacation in the next little bit. Next week I'm in New York for baseball tonight. Get to see my buddy Booney and the Yankees. Then I'm in Chicago. Then I'm in L.A. for Pac-12 days. And then Dan Stanzik's on vacation. I'm on vacation and I'm turning 40. And God, that's another midlife crisis waiting to happen. So Cinephile will return in mid-August. We'll see you back here in mid-August. We also have to plan our annual summer retreat. Last year, meet Dan Stanzik, Steve Cerruti, Rob Lemley, Max Bredos all went inside Dunkirk. There is no Dunkirk to see this summer. There's no movie that I'm that hyped about. Maybe we go see Black Clans, but at least have a stake. Ricky, of course, you're invited this year, so that's our uh, summer cinephile trip, so we'll look forward to that. And like I said, by the time we next speak in mid-August, I will have seen Black Klansman, Spike Lee's new movie, and that's really the one I'm looking forward to. We'll probably get a little Teen Titans going there as well, but... Uh, thanks so much for supporting Cinephile. Dan, how's the bid looking? Did, I was worried we'd be like, you know, Mr. Irrelevant here. See, here's the problem. Once the bid goes, the bid, the auction's over, it is eliminated immediately from the site. Oh, uh, okay. So I do not have anything to tell you. Because last time, the bid last year was like over $5,000. But that was a much better bid. That was you get to go to Tribeca and, you know, have dinner with me and we go see... I mean, I went up seeing Schindler's List by myself because, unfortunately, the guy who won wasn't able to make it. So this is just literally hang out and we're going to talk movies, which, listen, if anybody pays more than $1,000, God bless you. I promise we're going to have a wonderful time. But we don't know what the winning bid was. But whoever it was, congratulations. And thanks, everybody, for supporting the V Foundation. Thank you to Ben Bradley Jr. and Nick Davis, our special guests. And thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.